Weirdo Weirdo Bookworms Unite! Unite. Do your reading tastes range from dystopian sci-fi to middle-grade fantasy? Dark psychological thrillers to gory body horror? From YA paranormal swords and sorcery? Extraterrestrials? Murder? Mayhem! And beyond! Then we want to share our love of reading with you! Welcome home. Hey, genre junkies. This is Sandra. And this is Scott. And welcome to a book episode. (laughs) Thank you for being uh, so kind and all of the nice things you guys had to say about our 100th episode. That was a really cool thing to get to celebrate with everybody. I wish we could have had a a big genre junkies party all together. But it... You know, it's a huge milestone. We're very proud of it. We're very proud of being here with you and uh, back to our normal programming. (laughs) Back to your scheduled programming. So, Scott, I suppose we should share any roundtable items we have. Um, We've been really busy the last couple last three weeks uh, but especially the last couple of weeks I have to say the thing that I have been able to indulge in a little bit is getting caught back up again on The Walking Dead and I've actually been joining you a little bit on that too right you probably join me like every other time I'm able to tune in I think that's a good way to to ingest The Walking Dead personally have someone to explain what happened the last three episodes watch an episode or two and, and they just like pop, pop in. back in later yeah so originally like I I've said on some of my other shows I I've always been a huge diehard Walking Dead fan since the beginning um through ups and downs and gooder episodes and <laughs> worser <laughs> episodes and what have you and um in season nine, right at the early part of season nine, the halfway point or whatever, when Rick is gone, um, I needed a break. I think it was the mid-season hiatus then too. I could be wrong. Don't at me. I don't, I don't remember. But either way, I needed a break because that was a lot to take in. Um, I was very like shooketh. <laughs> And, and you he was know the emotional center of the show in so many ways he was and then that was also you know not long before that is when i lost morgan my favorite character um <laughs> to the other show and i know i was like i don't you know i don't want to watch that other show i don't want to get into it and so it was just like my my love with <laughs> my love affair with morgan kind of fizzled out and it was just hard and i just i just needed a break um so then the break became unintentionally long and I didn't mean to. And I was kind of like, am I breaking up with the walking dead? Am I not? And I, I'm so confused at this point as to what's going on with spinoffs and movies and TV shows. I don't know. And I don't know where I'm going with it, whatever direction it does, but I'm like, I need to finish this out. I need to finish this storyline because it's coming to a close. And so that's exactly what I did. And I'm so happy I did. And I think I, I just, I needed that respite. I used to write a weekly column about The Walking Dead. Like, I mean, I was so hardcore into this fandom and I still am, but it was like, I needed a little bit of a break. And I'm greatly looking forward to enjoying the the show in I mean, I guess I want to say syndication, but like being able to revisit it and watch episodes and have it play in the background for me. And maybe I will. Maybe I will, uh, you know, find love (laughs) in a hopeless place in one of the spinoffs or something. But I'm just not quite counting on it. Yeah. You know, what was it? The 11th season at this point? I mean, it's hard with a show that that's 10, 11 who knows? A whole bunch of seasons. You know, it's kind of natural to, even if it's not the fault of the show, to fall off a little bit. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I enjoyed the first three seasons and kind of fell off of it from there. I think. Yeah. I, I think it's natural to kind of take a break or even, you know, retire from a show before it's actually done. Yeah. Yeah. I. It's. I mean, yeah. I think we are in season eleven. I. With the like, I'm so confused. I'm so confused. I'm just, I'm just doing the best I you're can just enjoying, to get caught up. You're enjoying the ride. I'm enjoying the here and now with it. Yes. But I agree. And I mean, I did stick with Buffy till the end. I don't want to say I regret it, but for it wasn't the same show it was for me. Same thing with my beloved X Files, my favorite TV show ever. You know, I, mm, I didn't love it as much. 
mm-hmm. especially after Mulder left. It was hard for me to get into the Doggett era. And then Mulder kind of comes back, and then we had the movies, and which I enjoyed. But it's like I, it's hard, you know. It seems like shows you really love. Sometimes they they take this like circuitous route, and it, it makes it kind of like it's a little exhausting. Yeah. Well, the other piece of news that we have this week is uh, very exciting for us. Oh my gosh! Uh, we have we have a new employee. He doesn't have a job yet. He we're still getting to know his personality and his skill getting, set. You're getting to know his skill set, yeah. But we uh, very, uh, very suddenly. Suddenly, but not suddenly. I mean, we, we definitely had. we. Okay, well, let me let me stop burying the Just lead. Who it is. We rescued a chameleon. We found a chameleon who is an older gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was surrendered by the people who had him for, you know, the first years of his life. And he needed a place to crash. And we have been researching chameleons. We've been talking about chameleons for a while. I've always wanted a chameleon since I was like eight or nine years old. Just like you guys know about me and snakes and frogs, but especially snakes, always wanting one. That was Scott with chameleons ever since he was in third grade. And he did a report on chameleons. So so we had been doing a lot of research already. We kind of, we really knew what we wanted. There were some things that we definitely had to make final decisions on in a very yeah. in a matter of days before we brought him home but yeah we have we have pascal course, sitting here with reference. us while he's uh while we're recording he's listening in learning he's, the ropes he's absolutely gorgeous fully grown obviously because he's older veiled chameleon he looks like a mosaic piece of art he's just beautiful you know and he we he hasn't actually been with us even a full week yet so we're all still really getting to know each other and he's adapting to his new home and you know he might not like us handling him he might be okay with it we don't know yet but you know we're just kind of enjoying each other's presence we're just happy he's here we're happy to have him we're happy we can give him you know a a lovely rest of his life yeah his golden years are gonna be he's gonna go out in a blaze of glory let's put it that way (laughs) um they're cool they're really cool so on tonight's episode we have something even more cool maybe cooler i don't know would you call it a very special episode (laughs) i sure would uh so many in a row well you know at least two in a row um we are reviewing the book tonight the lamplighters and we got to interview the author herself emma stonix and look forward to that interview because she is a delight. All of our authors are, are a delight, of As course. You know, yeah, of course. But uh, you know, we she's our f- people, guys. Especially me. We have a ton in common. Yeah, I, Sandra, Sandra, and she definitely had a very strong connection. Yeah, we just she's a spooky, spooky babe. Um, it's so cool, so so cool. So that was a huge honor, and you guys are gonna hear her talk. The interview is spoiler free, so feel free to listen to this spoiler free section and the interview. And then, if you need to take a break to read the book, please do. So let me tell you a little bit about this novel, The Lamplighters, inspired by a haunting true story. It's New Year's Eve, 1972, when a boat pulls up to the Maiden Rock Lighthouse with relief for the keepers, but no one greets them. When the entrance door, locked from the inside, is battered down, rescuers find an empty tower. A table is laid for a meal not eaten. The principal keeper's weather log describes a storm raging round the tower, but the skies have been clear all week, and the clocks have all stopped at 845. Two decades later, the wives who were left behind are visited by a writer who is determined to find the truth about the men's disappearance. Moving between the women's stories and the men's last weeks together in the lighthouse, long-held secrets surface and truths twist into lies as we piece together what happened, why, and who to believe. This is a very interestingly written book. This is very interesting. Okay, before you even get into that, there's some great people blurbing this and some great blurbs in general. Ashley Audrain, who wrote The Push that we yeah. reviewed, she blurbed it. Uh, she said, transported me effortlessly, haunting, harrowing, and heartbreaking. This is a novel that will stay with you. And I really like this quote. I think this is from the publisher. There are two kinds of people. The ones who hear a creak in a dark, lonely house and shut the windows because it must have been the wind. And the ones who hear a creak in the dark, lonely house, light a candle and go take a look. Hi. 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 Yeah. 
you have our attention. I particularly like uh, the word haunting that Ashley Audrain used. This is a very haunting book. Uh, It's very hard to quantify exactly what uh, genre I would put this in. I would say creepy, mysterious, and haunting. I would say it's a mystery. Yeah. 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 Those are um, some great words to describe it. Haunting, mystery. This book is written in a really unique point of view. It jumps around between being like um, letters, between being interviews, um, first person, like all all the things. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's an interesting way to tell a story. This is, I mean, technically true crime because this was, I mean, or true weirdness. Um, this mystery is unsolved. Now, originally this happened, you know, in the turn of the last century. And um, Emma took some creative licensing with uh, moving the story to the 70s and the 90s. But um, this is a real mystery that is still not solved. Yeah. (laughs) So she uses that as a great basis and jumping off point. This novel is so much about loss and grief especially loss and so much about the situations that happen to you in life where you don't get a clean resolution where you don't get the nice tidy ending you want or we all feel we're entitled to um for me this was a solid solid page turner absolutely because i wanted to know and i was swept up in the romance of it and i mean that in the true the true the true use of the word yeah and not like the you know the romance i don't like (laughs) but in the true romantic notion of this story i i like that word there there is a romanticism to this novel um I have to point towards, like you said, it is a comp- it's a it's a compilation of both uh, traditional first person storytelling as well as interviews, letters. It almost feels like there's a you know a like a case file laid out on a on a table, and you just kind of scoop it up and just start reading it in the way that you pick yeah, it up. Yeah, you're like piecing out like a timeline. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I agree. This was absolutely a page turner for me, but a little bit of a different style of page turner than I normally uh, put into that category. Okay. When I started reading this book, I started reading it a little bit more uh, in pieces. And for those of you who listened to our last episode, I am capable (laughs) of reading a book that way. Um, But I was having trouble with it like that. Mm -hmm. Um. It wasn't until I literally started the book over again when I had, you know, I had an hour and a half to myself. I'm like, all right, I'm sitting down and I am just going to get into this book that it grabbed me. And I really understood the tone, the mood. There's there's a mood to this book. It's a moody book. Yes. And and that mood is part of the experience of the book. And, And that's why once I actually dedicated time to it, I, I I couldn't put it down because I didn't I didn't want to lose that feeling. I didn't want to lose that that experience that I was feeling. And Scott has he kind of just said this, but it's come up on the show before. Scott sometimes, not always, but sometimes has um a struggle getting into books that are non traditional formats. Oh yes. Um I and it's it's you know it's worked for me in the past with books or it hasn't worked for me in the past with books and I'm glad to hear that this ended up working out for you it was just like you needed kind of a reset but it kind of helps like us talking to you about it if you are like Scott then you know oh okay I can be prepared for that yeah this is not if you're like me this is not a oh you know read for 15 minutes on your break or you know read for 20 minutes before bed kind of book for someone like me and for for you readers out there who are like me, this is a this is your the book you're reading and yeah. and you know sink into it. It's such a smart way to tell a mystery. It really, really is. It's a very smart way to tell a mystery. It really is. It has touches of true crime, uh, you know, a la lore and Dateline. Yes, yes. But with with like a a a creepy edge more than right. just a terrifying one. Yeah. So let's talk about kind of lighthouses and some of the vibe of, of this book. So um, 
we like lighthouses. Um, <laughs> I've, you know, we talk about this in the interview too. I've always had a little bit of a romantic notion toward lighthouses and a fascination. Um, there's been some books that we've read where lighthouses were a part of it. And I'm thinking of the forest of hands and teeth series, that zombie series from a million years ago. Oh yeah. And I loved that. And I love the idea for myself of spending the zombie apocalypse in a lighthouse on the beach, like on a coastal area. I really like that for me. <laughs> Would love that journey for me. Um, but before that, I first got into lighthouses with the reading rainbow book. And I think it was when that we read the school librarian read to us, keep the lights burning Abby. It's an old book. Um, like we used to have like once a month, all the classes got to take turns going on a little field trip to the tiny school library. And Mrs. Hinkle, the librarian, <laughs> Mrs. Hinkle was a Miss Hinky. <laughs> sorry, 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 girl. Um, but she would read out loud and she was really good at reading very slowly, succinctly and showing the pictures. <laughs> and very important. Very important. And I think that's where I first read um, Abby, and then it was a reading rainbow joint as well. There's also a song by a now defunct bluegrass, um, kind of neo bluegrass band who we've gotten to see, Nickel Creek. Yeah, and like when I was in like high school, I think middle school, I don't remember that album came out, and they have a song on it called "On um, the Lighthouse," and it's like this story from the point of view of the lighthouse, seeing this romance play out between the keeper. And like the lady he falls in love with. And yeah, I mean, it's just, they're a thing. Lighthouses are a thing. And they're symbolically, they mean hope. There's a sadness to them. You know, they kept people from dying. They had like a purpose. There's a lot of mythos. I did not. I mean, I, I, I think lighthouses are beautiful, but I didn't have a, a strong attachment towards lighthouses. And part of that is because I had not read that book as a child. Yeah. And part of that is also because it never occurred to me what it was like before automation. You know, the, yeah. the first time I was really introduced to that, uh, I, I mean, besides Pete's Dragon. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's an early lighthouse yeah. it, situation. It is the movie The Lighthouse. Ugh. But that is, it's so dour and yes, and dark and yeah. and and dirty in a way <laughs> that it just seems so, it seems so foreign and alien and like yeah. something that, you know, you ship off people to do who, you know, you just can't, you know, Want can't handle. Out of society. Exactly. Yeah. This book actually makes me really love lighthouses. Yeah. You know, for how for you know, for how creepy and dark and mysterious this book is, there is to go back to a word you use, a romanticism. Yes. And there's a respectability to the profession yeah. that I had not experienced before in media. Right. That really just makes me so impressed and respectful of the people who did that. Uh, 100%, 100%. I, I so, I second that. So first of all, um, I love The Lighthouse, one of the most brilliant films I've ever seen. I thought it was genius. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, there's a loneliness to lighthouses. And this book is, this book is a mood. This book is especially the 70s stuff. This is a time. This is a place a slice of life, a glimpse into this time. And, you know, kind of before, not probably very long before they started to get automated. Um, and it kind of makes you think of like trains and, um, you know, street lamp lighters and, you know, things like that. These kind of antiquated positions that don't really exist anymore. I know those things all do exist and Absolutely, people yeah. work on them. But you know what I mean? Like you're kind of seeing an end of an era. The closest There's a romanticism to that. Yeah, the closest thing that I can think of that still exists today are people who work on shipping on shipping uh yeah. on shipping boats. You know, uh, I, I knew someone once who used to be a cook and he would be gone for months at a time. Yes. Uh, same thing. People who work like in logging. Yes. Exactly, yeah. yeah. That's that's the closest thing that I can think of that still exists that's like that. Uh, do you think that you could work on a 
lighthouse? Are you, fu- are you kidding me? No. No, no, no. I no. feel like I could. Oh, you'd be fine. It's eight you're weeks. A, you're basically a hermit. It's eight weeks every, and it, what was it, eight weeks out Scott, and four weeks Scott home? Scott has a very good slice of hermitage in him. Um, the only problem for me, though, is I would, would need some me. sort of internet. Uh, and I would miss you. I mean, yes, I would miss and you. And what about the cri- you would miss sweetheart <laughs> and stitches and Pascal? No, no give it's... me give me a pile of books and and some jobs to do around yeah. the lighthouse. I would be happy. I think. Yeah, if you didn't have us, I mean, yeah, if I didn't have you, like if I didn't have you and our animal family and stuff. I don't know. I have so many friends, though. I like seeing my friends. Um, but I mean, I think there's something about the romanticism of it would make me at least want to try it, like at least once to try it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to visit lighthouses. And as I said, it's a solid zombie plan for me. But um, I, yeah, I I just, ooh, it's it's not the way I, I would want to live my life. And it, you see in this book, the repercussions of this lifestyle too. There's a blowback, there's a ripple effect, and it goes through so many people in so many's lives uh, living this way. And it's cool. Emma talks to us about, you know, why they started putting three men in a lighthouse. Um, You know, there's, I think (laughs) with the pandemic, I think a lot of us got a taste for isolation and a lot of us did not like the flavor <laughs> of it. And I'm not saying it's the same thing, but people who are like, oh my God, I can't, I can't handle it. It's like, well, you would not have been able to handle this sort of life. The, the thing that I will say uh, going into this book is that feeling of isolation is not actually the strongest the strongest emotion, the strongest undercurrent of this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is definitely themes of it, and I'll go into more detail on what I mean in the spoiler section. Okay. But um, don't shy away from this book if what we said about isolation and the idea of isolation uh, maybe turns you off from the book at this We're time sure. of year. It's a different isolation than you know right now, but I think that maybe some of us can kind of relate I, but it's it's isolation in the same way that cottage core is isolation. <laughs> you know, when it's you think about false. the reality of yeah. of cottage core life, like oh, you mean I don't see anybody and I have to grow all my own food and I can't go out to dinner. That doesn't sound very fun, but yeah, but it is romanticized in a way uh, that makes it seem very appealing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's a whole other subject. It really is. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I, before we go to the spoiler section, before we go to the interview, um, that I really wanted to also add is there is a really cool message in this book about learning to be alone and learning to be kind of okay being alone. Um, and I think that is a huge, huge, important step in becoming a human. Um, I really do. And that was something my dad taught me when I was like a teenager is you have to learn to be alone and be comfortable with it, to find comfort in your solitude, in your thoughts, in your reflection, and enjoying your time alone. And um, I've really come to value that. And, you know, of course, you know, I love the people I love and I want to spend time with them. But it is, I, I just think it's a huge part of being human is you have to learn that there there are there are certainly some people who feel like they are not fulfilled unless they are doing something and seeing someone every single day and there are there are those of us like you and i who very much treasure our alone time and our private time and our off time you need to you really need to so in regards to appeal i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with a broad appeal on this book uh i think and i'm you know, I'm tempted to go even higher than that. I think I think that this is a great book for anybody who loves mysteries, who anyone anyone who loves literature. Yeah. Um I I don't know if it's the kind of book that's going to pick up people who aren't readers, which is kind of what I'm thinking for mass. But I, uh, yeah. But at the same time, like I think anyone who is a reader will like this book. So I'm I'm really torn between the two. I hear you. I'm kind of like I see it as kind of like a bridge between 
those two as well. We just broke down the categories and now yeah. we're waffling on what they mean. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not waffling at all. It's just to give a fair appeal. Silly. Um, but I, I'm, I am inclined to go towards mass. Um, I mean, it's, I think the argument could be made either way, but, um, I guess for just the sake of keeping it simple, I would say broad because I, I do think that people need to be somewhat of a reader, you know, because mass is like we talked about. It's like that Harry Potter's. It's, the people you, it, who it, read, the, yeah. you know, one book every two years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll want to read this. And um, it's the literary equivalent of a bit of a slow burn. I think, and I mean, it's a page turner, but it's a slow burn in the sense that she doesn't just dump everything on It reveals its secrets slowly. It's like a flower opening, right? Like you get a petal, you get a petal, you get, you know, these little parts of a whole. And um, I think, and it is exciting. Like I said, it it was a page turner for me, but it's, it's an unfolding I, I can't ag- I, I could not agree more. Okay, so I think we're ready for the interview. What do you think, Scott? I am so ready. All right. We are so humbled, honored that we were able to get this interview with this amazing author, such a lovely, incredible, incredible person. And she lives um, in England. So this was, you know, it's always a little bit of a feat to schedule. Um, But we made it work and she made it work. And I had a blast. Scott did too. So I hope you all enjoy our conversation with Emma Stonix. Hey, Bookworm Buddy, don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review. And while you're at it, find us on Instagram at Genre Junkies. With us today, author of The Lamplighters, Emma Stonex. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. This is so exciting for us. We're um, the uncultured colonials over here in <laughs> California. We get to talk to someone across the, the pond. <laughs> So uh, right off the bat, I I wanted to ask you, um, what interested you in this story uh, at this lighthouse, uh, both the true story and the story that you wanted to tell to create this book? Well, The Lamplighters is based on the real life disappearance of three lighthouse keepers from the Fannin Isles in Scotland in 1900. And as soon as I read about this mystery, this is going back several years now, it just combined everything that I love as a reader, the atmosphere of the sea, the atmosphere of the lighthouse. And of course, the fact that the mystery itself is unsolved 120 years later, it really got my creative imagination going. And I knew that I wanted to reimagine it in a novel. That's so cool. I um I I noticed in your thank yous you shouted out Aaron Mankey. <laughs> so must Oh be, yes. Must be yes. a lore fan as I am. Huge lore oh, fan. Oh, such a huge I'm such a huge fan of anything like that. And and I listened to his his um his episode on the lighthouse at the Smalls Lighthouse, which is off the coast of Wales, um, where there was this really horrendous episode of of two keepers out on a tower light and one of whom died during the stay and the other one was so terrified of being accused of foul play that he ended up keeping the corpse with him for the whole of the rest of his spell of duty um you can imagine was just so grim and he ended up having to put the body out on the gallery rail and the wind was moving the dead body's arm so ships passing thought this man was waving and didn't think anything was the matter really creepy stuff and actually since then i know it's just fine tingling isn't it yeah and then since then they upgraded the crews to three men on a lighthouse at any one time and that was the reason why to avoid something like that happening again oh my god that's fascinating and you kind of um touch on that story in the novel too mm-hmm. a little bit mm-hmm. yeah have you always had a fascination with lighthouses or is that now you're kind of a lighthouse expert <laughs> oh well thank you very much um i've always had a fascination with lighthouses but i think i think a lot of us have everyone that i've spoken to during the process of writing this book and then publishing it has some kind of connection emotional connection with lighthouses mm-hmm. i think there's something really special about standing 
on the headland and looking out to sea. I don't know if you guys have lots of tower lights in the US. Are you familiar with tower lights? Uh, we have, we do have them. Um, not as many on the West Coast as I feel the East Coast. Mm-hmm. But I mean, mm-hmm. if, we've definitely seen them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, in the UK, particularly off the Southwest Coast, we have really treacherous reefs um, that are that, that needed needed lights built on them to avoid so many shipwrecks. And this was going back hundreds of years when they started the effort to build them. Um, And there's something about standing. I was at Land's End down in Cornwall a few years ago, and you can just see about a mile out a lighthouse called the Longships Lighthouse. But then beyond that, 15 miles away is the Wolf Rock, which is the inspiration for my fictional maiden rock in the in the lamplighters and that's called the wolf rock because of the howling sound the wind makes it tunnels through the rocks and i just love that it's just it they really speak to me lighthouses and i think they connect with a lot of people oh that is like really beautiful i i'm the same i have a i have a bit of a fascination with lighthouses i love how i say that about the west coast and now everybody who's an enthusiast is going to write in like sandra you know nothing about <laughs> the west coast and um but that's fine just send all your hate mail to me um but i've had a fascination with lighthouses since i was a little kid and i read the book by uh i think it's peter roop keep the lights burning abby I don't. Yeah. You, did you ever yeah. read that old I, book? I, I know of it because yeah. other people have told me about it, but I haven't read it myself. I uh, will now. Yeah, it's it was like a reading rainbow <laughs> production, oh. and um, and I remember getting the book, and yeah, just there's something very romantic about them, and and of course it's kind of obviously something we still have, but it's so different than than how it used to be. Mm, that's right and I mean I think I think we do have a slightly nostalgic romantic idea about lighthouses partly because they're all automated now so in the UK that they're all electric Um, I think the last one to go was 1998 so quite a long time ago Um, but it's this idea that they used to be lived on and now they're now they're empty and and so they have this slightly ghostly abandoned melancholy air as well which just adds to how how captivating they are yeah ghostly i think that's perfect perfect in the afterword of the book you mention a just a large number of source material that you read through how did you go about researching a topic that you did not have necessarily knowledge about beforehand Mm, I had no knowledge at all of lighthouses other than loving them. Um, I knew nothing about them. I don't have any lighthouse keepers in my family, much the shame of that. I, I wish I did. Um, but I I was just so passionate about the subject. And I think that's where, where all writers start. And I know the advice is to write what you know. But I also think if you can write what you're passionate about, that that's the key. And that meant that all the research that I did for the lamplighters, it didn't feel like work. It didn't feel like research with a capital R. It just felt like something I was desperate to learn about and read about. And what really interests me about lighthouse keeping are the keepers themselves and the families of the keepers and what kind of mindset it took to do that job and what it was like for the people who were left behind on the shore. So the more I read these first person memoirs, I read interviews with lighthouse keepers, that's when the the form of the story really clicked into place because I wanted the, the first person voices to tell us rather than me as the author, as it were, to tell the story. That actually leads into my next question is you have a very creative way of telling the story that kind of flips between traditional storytelling methods, interview, letters. Where did that come from and how did that develop? Well, I I wanted to tell it from multiple perspectives, um, mainly because I wanted the the core mystery to remain intact. I wanted the, um, so as it's based on on an unsolved real life mystery, part of the allure of that is that it still is unsolved and there still aren't answers. So I was wary of telling something in a conventional chronological way that ended up with me going, and this is the answer. And that's Mm, the end. Right. I, I wanted readers to get to the end and still have questions. And the best way of me doing that Um, I thought, was to tell it from multiple perspectives so that the reader is sort of buffeted between different versions of events, a little bit like being on the sea almost, that you're swept in one direction on one character's 
um, recollections and then you're buffeted in another direction thinking oh maybe they're not right about that and the novel is is very much about miscommunication and misunderstanding mm. um, and how the importance of listening and communicating so that was very early on I decided that was how I wanted to tell it and it also gives these characters a chance to relay the story in their own voice and there was an element of sensitivity to the original event that I wanted to to keep. So these were real men who presumably lost their lives back in 1900, real families who have had to live without answers. So I didn't want to impose myself too heavily into that. I wanted to let these people relay it themselves. Oh, that's really beautiful and very sensitive. And I think that's like when when true crime, essentially, I don't know how else to put this, true mystery really shines is when you kind of showcase the people who, you know, were affected by the tragedy. Yeah. And, and you know, I think it, you've got to be so careful when you're reimagining a historical episode to to be sensitive and to relay it as authentically as you can Mm -hmm. um and I didn't want that's one of the reasons why I distanced myself um from the place and time in which the real event happened I mean I also just couldn't fathom Scottish dialect in 1900 (laughs) I didn't trust myself to get that in any way shape or form right um But that's one of the reasons that I moved it to 1970s and down to Cornwall, because I thought I don't want to attempt to retell these specific men and put thoughts in their heads and words in their mouth, because that felt a little bit disrespectful. One of the really cool things that um, I learned (laughs) educationally from your novel, too, was this concept I never thought of that lightkeepers they're basically they're in quote unquote the service it's kind of like how people talk about the military and Mm. you know that there's like these little different branches of being a lightkeeper and there's kind of this honor to it and I thought that was really cool yeah I mean it's one of the it is a bit like being being in the army I suppose and the families and the keepers would be given Um, provisional accommodation so they'd be sent to a light and they would be given somewhere to live and once you were in you were in it was a tremendous security for life once you were in and it was a very reliable climb to the top so you would enter as a supernumerary keeper you would be promoted to an assistant keeper and then you would become a principal keeper and that was based on purely on the hours and the time that you put in so it was a very sort of honest promotion you know based career trajectory um which people appreciated um but yeah i mean it 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 was it's definitely a family i think the lighthouse service um and therefore it had adds this slight secretive feeling around it very yeah very fascinating i i have a question i'm sorry you're probably so sick of people asking this but have you seen the lighthouse by the hackers <laughs> and what did you think of the film <laughs> Do you know, I'm not sick of it because I love I love talking about other things to do with lighthouses. Okay. I'm afraid I have not seen it. And the reason for that is I've been too afraid to. Mm. I feel like I can watch it now. But when I was writing this novel, I was, so, you know, like when you're doing something creative and you feel like you have almost creative dibs on it and then yeah. someone else does something about a similar topic yes. and you feel like they've been reading your diary oh. or they've sort of got into your head and you think oh no and of course the lighthouse is completely different to my book and it's set in May I think and it's set yeah. a long time ago and it's in black and white and I think it looks and sounds right up my street so I'm going to make it my business to watch this week I've got a date oh. this week. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so exciting. I feel, oh my gosh, I feel weirdly honored that I asked the question and got to, to have that on there. Um, I expect, a follow- <laughs> expect a follow-up from us because we're going <laughs> to want to know what you thought. We're oh, like, you oh, know yeah. what? We'll just, we'll just hit start at the same time and we'll watch together. It's fine. <laughs> um, have you not seen it either? No, I, I have seen it. Um, I, it's a polarizing film. I absolutely adore it. I absolutely yeah. adore it. Scott was a little WTF, but <laughs> I know people who've been WTF and I know people who've been like, oh my God, it's amazing. And I have to say, I, I love like, cause it's shot in 
a kind of small frame, isn't it, to, yeah. to make it feel claustrophobic. Yeah. I love the idea of accelerating madness in a confined space. I think it looks really artfully shot. I think I'm going to love it. Oh, my gosh. You are so our type of person. I mean, <laughs> that's like... That's like music to my ears. I love that too. I love uh, I love anything that's like paranoia, that's like, you know, kind of conspiratorial feeling. Definitely. I know I was looking at your website actually when we made a date to, to record this and I thought, yeah, we're in the same boat. These are my people. These are my people. <laughs> oh my gosh. Be uh, very flattered. Thank you. Thank you for looking at our website. Appreciate that. So, Emma, I was wondering, I understand that you have written many novel novels under a pseudonym. What was it about Lamplighters that made you decide to publish it under your own name? Um, I started writing books about 10 years ago, unbelievably, and I've written under three different pen names. Um, when I first met my agent in 2010, and she agreed to represent me for one of my other books, I said to her at the time, I have a book about a lighthouse that I really want to write. I have the idea. I just don't know how to get into it now. I hadn't done the research yet. I didn't know how to present it. So I knew that I wanted to keep my name for that. So I said to her, I want to use the pseudonyms for these other ones. Mm. Um, but the the idea for the lighthouse, for the lamplighters, never left me. It was always a shining light at my shoulder through all of those years. And I always knew it was the one that I wanted to attach my real name to because it's my heart and soul. It's who I am as a writer, whereas the other books I've written have been, I'm very proud of them, but they there was always emotional disc there. Mm. Whereas with the lamplighters, it's very much me um, through and through. So it always had to be my name for this. Oh, that's cool. I can't believe how long that this has been you know, rolling really? around. Yeah, in your brain. I know it has been a long time. And it's funny because I really don't think I could have written it before. I don't think I would have had the confidence. Um, I wouldn't have known as, as much because I just wouldn't have had the time to read that I've had. But I also, I think I needed to exercise my writing muscle and to gain the confidence. And I drafted the lamplighters, oh my goodness, ooh, 10, 11, 12 times more probably. I mean, I it really put me through the mill. And I think if I hadn't had the experience that I've had to know that it's it's okay to draft a book that many times, it's okay to completely freak out about what you're doing and think that it's complete rubbish and then pick yourself up and carry on. Because this is just part of what it is writing a novel. And you'd think that 10 books in, I would have got it down pat, but I haven't because every book is its own beast and presents its own problems. Um so I think that really helped me with with the lamplighters, and I was very grateful to lean on that experience that I've had with my other books. So this is a very personal project for you. What has it been like putting it out there in the world and 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 being you know releasing it to everyone else and being done with it? Oh, it's been really marvelous, actually. Um, I mean, launching a book in lockdown has been strange for for many of us. Um, <laughs> act. <laughs> But actually, when the book came out in the UK um, three weeks ago, um, it really felt celebratory. It really felt great. And like there was loads of buzz and we had some brilliant reviews and I just felt fantastic. And actually, I feel like I've come out. I feel like this is sort of I do like because it's me. Yeah. At last it's me. And it, it is a more vulnerable feeling than I've had in the past, because with my other books, as I say, there was that distance. So you and you were hiding behind a name that wasn't yours as well so there was there was a bit of protection in that whereas with the lamplighters it's a much more vulnerable feeling um but then with that comes a greater sense of worth and a greater sense of value um it's lovely to have it out there now after such a long time and i am so glad with the warm reception it's had so far oh cool that's great to hear that is really good to hear. Well, we're so happy for you. <laughs> Thank you. And it's so exciting that it's out in the States as well. I mean, it's such, it's weird because The Lamplighters to me is a really kind of British book. It's like these curmudgeonly <laughs> lighthouse keepers on a tower and there's all sorts of British references. And I remember my wonderful American copy editor had all these questions about TV shows that I reference and foodstuffs <laughs> that you guys don't have over there. Um, and it was just 
it's amazing that it's been in picked up internationally and it's sold into lots of translations. And I just think, again, I think that comes back to the lighthouse fascination. I think that we all have that connection and we just, we get it with lighthouses that it speaks, they speak to us in a personal way, no matter who we are or where we are. Absolutely. And I, yeah, there's very much a feeling of, you know, kind of being in another time and place in someone else's shoes. And I think a lot of readers love that and love learning about, you know, like these quiz shows you talk about. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but I can <laughs> Google it. And, you know, it's it's good. It's good. Yeah, well, I mean, some of them I didn't know because I, the, you weren't alive. I, was, born in the, I was born in the 80s. Yeah. yeah. So the 70s, I'm like, oh, and there were a couple of things where I, I reference. I mean, the copy editors are just fantastic, aren't they? I love how <laughs> precise they are. And of course, they have to be. But and she was saying, oh, actually, the first episode of this was aired a week before you're saying it was and all this wonderful information. Um, but yes, I mean, I had to feel my way into that a little bit as well. Oh, that's so funny. That is incredibly precise. Yeah, because people will notice. I, just think, I know. And it's amazing when, as an author, when this thing has come out of your head um, and somebody is treating it with such care and attention and you know, going through it with such a fine tooth comb. It's, it's really wonderful. And yeah, a wonderful experience. So speaking of writing, have you always been a writer? Did you write as a kid? And and if so, what was the first story you ever wrote? Oh, what a great question. Yes, I have always written. And I mean, all authors seem to say I've only ever wanted to be a writer, but that's just because it's true. I have only ever wanted to be a writer and it's all that I'm any good at. I'm crap at everything else. <laughs> I can do something. Um, and yeah, so when I was right from day dot, I remember scribbling in notebooks and you do that thing where you'd you'd um, write on pieces of paper and then staple them together and maybe draw a little barcode on the back. Oh. Um, the first you're like this, Sandra. The first um the first story I wrote was called The Nightmare House. Yes. Um, and it had a picture on the front of a big, big house looking all foreboding and ghouls going around the chimney things I mean that was something when I was about seven or eight um yeah I mean it's it's terrible but <laughs> <laughs> no it's, but it's perfect <laughs> but I think that's actually quite telling because the books I've written in the past have been very mainstream commercial fiction without really a dark edge but certainly um the dark edge is where where I, I find the most thrills and interest as a writer and I've been able to explore that fully with the lamplighter so in a way it's like coming back to the nightmare house that's what I was gonna say exactly you're kind of returning to your roots because this book has a um it has a spookiness to it it has a spooky mystery you know that's that's definitely at its core I I mean I have to know can, are we gonna get more spooky books from you more mysteries yeah so the unsolved mystery is where my heart's at just kind of reimagining an episode that I find fascinating and about which there perhaps aren't concrete answers because it just invites the imagination right. in such a brilliant way and thinking about the Flannan Isles vanishing the three keepers who vanished in 1900 visitors to that island claim to have seen all sorts of supernatural things three large birds circling the tower lights in the sky above above the lighthouse um weird little details like that that just make you think oh what if you know what if something else was at play um and I definitely wanted to bring that into the lamplighters and give that enough oxygen um to, to keep the reader's imagination going oh yes any time I can have a logical answer or a supernatural one I shall choose supernatural <laughs> it's way yes, more fun exactly exactly and that's kind of what the wives talk about a little bit in the lamplighters because Jenny, Bill's wife, is more open to the supernatural side of life, whereas Helen, Arthur's wife, is more pragmatic and more rooted in the earth, isn't she? But yeah. but they talk about, you know, what do I decide on the prosaic version of the truth? Do I decide that it's some it's the sea washed them away? Or do I think, what if something else was was going on? And I didn't want to fall too heavily on one side or the other. Um so I, I tried to inject the novel with that feeling of eeriness throughout. 
Oh, I think you nailed it. I really do. Um, one thing we always like to ask is, do you have some some books? I know you've been busy, but some books that you would like to recommend to our listeners, some books that you love or something you've read lately that you love? Oh, I've got to say one of the best books I've read lately, which you may have heard of, is a book called The Last House on Needless Street mm-hmm. by Catriona Ward. Oh, I think you would absolutely love it. It's it's a it's a masterclass in horror, but in the kind of horror that is so that relies so much on the reader's private fears. So it, it's not it's very subtle. It's very beautifully done. It's absolutely wonderful. And that came out in the UK last week. I think it's coming out in the US in autumn. But that's definitely worth looking out for. Oh my god! I'm just it's, I'm like adding it to cart as we speak. <laughs> like hold oh, on. I really th- I'd love to know what you think. I think you'd love it gothic masterpiece yeah 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 we like that (laughs) we do oh my gosh i it's so funny because we're not far apart in age but you're the exact same age as my sister so this is very much like i just feel like i'm talking to my sister right now it's amazing that's so nice (laughs) does she have similar tastes to you you know she's been on the show a few times with us she loves fantasy she can go dark she's more on my side yeah she loves sci-fi but she's kind kind of she's kind of a scaredy cat with horror (laughs) i like to push her a little but horror is such a broad term isn't it because it's like is so when i watch horror i think i mean i I don't mind gory horror like i enjoy gory horror for its own reasons but what i love is the spooky psychological what's in the shadows rather than somebody kind of wielding a weapon yeah for me it's what's in the shadows that's that's really interesting Absolutely. And and the possibilities are endless then. Yes, exactly. Exactly. We should have a horror night. Oh, my God. Stop. Yes. Don't don't tease us because we'll do it. That's with a good time, Emma. (laughs) You'll turn up. You'll get a plane over when you're allowed and I'll find you on my doorstep with some (laughs) popcorn. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We'll bring you some American treats. Oh, yes, please. (laughs) Well, Halloween is my favorite time of year. And I know that you guys in the States celebrate Halloween in a big way. And we and we do over here, but yeah. perhaps not quite in the same way. It's my favorite festival. I just love it. Oh, I'm so glad. we Yeah, we love Halloween. And before COVID, we like to throw big Halloween parties. But hopefully, we'll see how things shape up this year. They might be back. And I have some Halloween tattoos as well. Yeah. Nice. What kind of tattoos? Oh my gosh. Well, I have I have a lot <laughs> what of tattoos. Doesn't she have? Um, but I have like a whole sleeve, I'm, my legs, my back, like everything. But I have a I have a jack-o'-lantern. I have a little cupie doll that looks like a little black cat with a little witch broom. I have that a tombstone. Cool. I have tons of bats and spider webs which aren't necessarily just Halloween, but You need a lighthouse now. I do need a lighthouse now. I do. <laughs> Spooky lighthouse. <laughs> I need the uh, I need the maiden. <laughs> yes, you need the maiden. A hundred percent. I fully endorse that decision. Ah! <laughs> Scott's like, I want a lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today and 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 spending time with us and talking about your book. Where can our listeners find you and and follow you? Um, so I'm on Twitter, um, and I'd love to hear from from everybody. Um, I'm at Stonex Emma, so S T O N E X Emma, um, and yeah, I'd love to be in touch. Um, I'm in the process of building a website, but it's not ready yet. Websites are never ready; they're just released. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a joy to talk to you. And and thank you so much for your support of the Lamplighters as well. I really appreciate it. Hey, Bookworm Buddy, don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review. And while you're at it, find us on Instagram at Genre Junkies. Welcome to the spoiler section. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, Let's talk about the book in a more unguarded fashion. Did you want to start? Yeah, I want to talk about uh, what I I referenced to in the non-spoiler section in regards to the, um, the feelings of isolation. Yeah. What I, something that I didn't really, I didn't really like, like put together in my mind until I had finished the book and and looked back on it is that the isolation 
wasn't really focused around the the men who were lighthouse keepers. Yes. The people who were having these feelings of isolation were their wives back on the mainland. Yes, yeah. And that was a really interesting take and change to to what you would normally expect in a book that features uh, lighthouse keepers, really. Right, right. No, I totally agree. And uh, we even get glimpses of what it's like for their kids, um, you know, and just kind of how this affects the relationship and the family dynamic um, and how, you know, it's one of those things that sounded so good on paper for these wives, you know, for their husbands to join up into this service. But it's very complicated. It's complicated because, it, you know, in particular, these three women, they did not have the same ties or desires uh, amongst, like, you know, the other women in the in this town. Right. That, that at least one thing that I find interesting is probably none of those women really wanted to do all of that stuff that they were kind of like societally expected to do. Yes. But it was, but, you know, when you have these three men on the lighthouse, they have their own sort of camaraderie, almost their own kind of language and and sense of family yeah. in a respect. Right. Where the people that they've left at home, their wives and their children, they don't have that same yeah. thing. And so there's a there's a feeling of being all alone right. and being left alone for all of this time and made even worse by the fact that this person who they've chosen to spend their life with, yeah. there is zero communication. The only thing that they that they see of them is they can look off into the distance and they see the light of the lighthouse, which yeah. almost makes it worse. Right. And because of where they're stationed, you like live in like this little like founded area, basically. And there's, you know, there's kind of like you can write, it's kind of weird to write and it's kind of unreliable. Uh, you know, to kind of send letters that way. So, yeah, I mean, there's no cell, no cell tower out there. <laughs> and this is the 70s. And I think it was really smart, too, of Emma to, you know, modernize this just enough. But this is, I mean, I think it could still be hard in so many different ways, but especially in the 70s, where there was just such an expectation and an attitude from women and from husbands and wives and i mean all of that stuff you know it's like that's maybe what people saw on the surface but everybody of course has issues and and things going on underneath the surface and those issues lead into the other thing that i really liked about this book and and there's all of the mystery and you're trying to figure out what's going on and, and you're waiting for that shoe to drop but at the end of the day, it's really a character study right. of these six people. Yeah. And you learn things about someone through through, you know, their partner's eyes or their friend's eyes. Yeah. And you learn so much about them. And then you hear from their own mind or from their letters or from their interviews that they're Views, perception. Their yeah. perception of the relationship and the existence is totally different. Totally different. Nothing is more evident than that than the fact, I mean, with Helen and the quote unquote affair. Yeah. You know, the he said, she said of that is two vastly different interpretations. And mm, that's rough. That's really rough. And nobody really wins in that situation. By the way, I can see you taking up seashell carving. <laughs> I, yep. In fact, I, I kind of wanted to look into what that was all about, to be honest with you. I think, I think that is something I might, you know, put my hand in a little bit and learn a little bit more about. Yeah, I can see it. I can totally see it. Even, even in their relationships, uh, Arthur and Helen, the two of them, it's so tragic because the two of them love each other so so strongly right and they have so many fond memories of each uh, of each other and they're so happy with how that they met and how they created this life but both of them don't see the other person helen feels like arthur doesn't love her anymore because 
you know, he hasn't even touched her. Meanwhile, Arthur is over here just absolutely head over heels thinking about how, you know, he wishes he could, you know, ride home on the bow of a boat and jump in and swim towards her and, and you know, yeah. sweep her up into his arms. Like, he's a hopeless romantic at the same time. It's like... But he can't communicate. Exactly. And it's so sad to see this relationship like that yeah it kind of erodes and then they have this tragedy of you know losing their son and i don't know the statistic exactly but that's something that really breaks up marriages and relationships is the loss of a child and i mean even more so we have this old school guy in the 70s and he's got that you know british stiff upper lip and don't show emotions and so then it's like you know you have these two people who've kind of their marriage is kind of eroded mm-hmm. and then you have bill who has so many issues from his childhood and his life and you know and his and his wife she's got all these struggles of trying to keep everything together at home and manage the unimaginable stress of having all those kids by yourself most of the time and then you have Vince who had a troubled life and he's trying to turn things around and then he becomes like the scapegoat for the thing and then you have his relationship with Michelle and they're kind of like really like a new love super super in love with each other and they're not kind of going through the traditional motions of a new relationship um there's just so much nuance and into every character and they're they're very layered uh, complicated and very realistic people even bill who at the end of the day is probably the least likable based on his decisions and choices in the book right um you know, he has a real strong Oedipus complex, <laughs> which his father kind of put in him by, yeah. you know. What they did to him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but even he, like, you understand and you, you empathize. You see it. With him, yeah. Like, yeah, I see why you'd feel that way. I see where you're coming from. Um, and then there is, of course, uh, she has these great kind of conclusions that one can draw from what happened. Um, but it still is a mystery. It's a bit of a mystery, but I do I appreciate that she decided to put to put her spin on what happened in there. Right. Um and I liked it. I liked that. Yeah, I I, I appreciated that and I appreciated that while the characters who were still alive, they were not privy to the knowledge that we as readers are. Yeah. I appreciate like there's two there's two different ways to write an ending like this, right? Yeah. You can have the you can have the ending where, you know, where the, when the main when when the when the characters who are alive at the end of the book, you know, at the conclusion if they don't really have an answer, then you're left wondering as well. Right. Which we read a lot of books like that and Sandra loves a good dose of ambiguity. Love it. I on the other hand am perfectly happy with being very sad for for the characters to not have resolution and 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 I do feel that but at least I have some <laughs> <laughs> sorry suckers at least I got some answers no and not only did I appreciate like what she did I appreciated how she did I appreciated the story she told to wrap up that mystery I think it was a good story yes um, much more satisfying than, oh, Vince is a criminal and he got criminal on everybody. It's like, oh, come on. No. I do like that that her theory at the very beginning of the book that, I mean, the wind could have just slammed the door closed and knocked the lock down, ended up being how the door locked. You can see that happening. Absolutely. And it's like, oh, f- that'd be bad. <laughs> that'd be real bad. Uh, and poor dude. Vince, the only bad thing that he ever did in this whole story after all is said and done was steal a chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And he ends up, yeah, being this scapegoat, like I said. And, you know, and the woman who loved him so much, she has to live with that being his legacy is that people, you know, were like, oh, you know, some people just don't change. He's criminal. He's a bad dude so messed up and it turns out that trident was absolutely right to hire him because he would have been an 
excellent PK. You would have. And you're sad. Like, there's so much of loss in this book, like I said, and so many different kinds of loss. And her loss resonated with me a lot because she's in this, you know, kind of groggy marriage to this kind of loser guy. She likes her kids, which is really cool. (laughs) But I mean, you can see what their life would have been. And they probably would have had a really good PK and wife relationship. I think if so anybody too. could, I think it could be them. I think that she would have liked that kind of. Um, I, I can't remember what untraditional life. Well, yeah, but also yeah. like I think she would have liked being a little bit the 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 organizer of the activities. The kind yeah. there's kind of a responsibility that comes from being the PK's wife, for right. better or for worse. But yeah. I think that she would have embraced that. There is a certain there's a certain power that she would. Uh, there's a certain strength that she it felt like she was looking forward to that she was yeah. building towards that was stalled when all of this happened. Yeah, and there's like I said everybody's got this nice complicated journey and I like everybody's journey and story, but hers and Vince's was really the one that made me like the most emotionally invested, I guess. It may be the most invested in it, and it also <laughs> when it comes down to it was for Vince, the the saddest thing in regards to, you know, why they ended up going with three keepers in a lighthouse. And at the end of the day, it was just the two that caused all the problems. And the third one was for all intents and purposes, an innocent bystander. Right. And I'm, I'm glad his, his death was relatively clean. He kind of just died in a haze of confusion. Yeah. He was really sick for a couple of days. Yeah, no, I mean, like, he wasn't viciously murdered. I mean, Arthur's body kind of did not get a lot of dignity from <laughs> from, uh, from Bill there. Yeah. Bill's, Bill's Bill. He was a nut. He was a nut. Um, and Arthur was a bit of a nut, you know? The whole thing with the storm and the journals. Oh, what's going on there? Oh, yeah, I... I didn't think about you. I think that Arthur, I shouldn't say Arthur's a nut. Bill's a nut. <laughs> Arthur uh, is still a rational nut. Like you can still rationalize how Bill got to that point. Not without sympathy, like we said. But Arthur, I think, just kind of had a breakdown. I think he really did. He's ready he, for retirement. He He got to that point where with his son, with his wife, with his, you know, life in service, and so much time alone. And even though he did like the alone time, I, you know, maybe there's some sort of regret looking back on your life that he just had a little bit of a disconnect with reality for, for a minute. He, mm. he had a breakdown. All right. We've got to score this book. This book took me by surprise because of the rough start that I had with it. You know, at first I was I was concerned. And so my score does come from a little bit of a area of surprise. Okay. Uh, this is five foghorns out of five. <gasps> I I think that this book is brilliantly written. It is clearly written with so much love and passion for the subject. The characters are rich, detailed, human individuals that I I I I think about and fell in love with and care deeply for. I think that's awesome. I'm going to give her, I'm going to give the maiden four fog horns <laughs> out of five. I almost call it like a fog hound. I don't know what a fog hound is, but I like the sound of it. Uh, beautiful, beautifully written book, wonderfully told story by an intelligent woman who's super cool. And I can't wait to read more of her stuff. Um, so, so happy for this journey she's been on with this story and i i love what she stands for in her mysteries and i'm so excited to be a reader of hers okay everybody thank you scott thank you sandra i've got two things for you first of all please keep reading past your bedtime and lastly it's bad luck to kill a seabird (laughs) 